1: Welcome to the 22nd edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, President of Sensei Enterprises. We would like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Galvan, Gallivan and Amelia, creators of the Digital War Room platform for eDiscovery.
2: And I'm John Simic, Vice President of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is predictive coding arose by any other name. We're pleased to welcome as our guest, Dan Gallivan. Dan is one of the founders and chief technology officer for GGO and is responsible for all software tools and service delivery methodologies and best practices.
1: Welcome, Dan.
3: Hello. Welcome.
1: At Legal Tech, it became clear that, as the title of this podcast suggests, we have a lot of names for the same thing. Predictive coding, machine-assisted review, computer-assisted review, Ralph Losey likes that one, I think, because the acronym is CAR, technology-assisted review, and enhanced search, which is Craig Ball's choice. And when people use these terms, they often mean very different things, so it's confusing. What term do you prefer and why?
3: Well, I do think there is a fair amount of confusion around terms out there, but that's by and large because different individuals or institutions are kind of pushing subtly different points. Um, To be honest, I don't have a personal preference yet because what I think is going on within the industry is that it isn't quite mature enough yet that we really know what we're describing. Um, Each of those terms I've seen applied in different ways, and as the technology emerges, the various vendors and pundits are going to put forth the names that are are uh, most meaningful to them or, if you will, an attempt to brand something that they're after. Um, an example of this would be, like, consider the term cloud. Uh That's still confusing to a lot of people, and it's come to mean everything from on the web to remote computing. But over the course of the last year, it's settling down a bit to where people are beginning to understand it means, really, computing that is not where the machines are within my, my site, managed by somebody else. I think over time confusion in our industry around what these terms mean will begin to settle out as people begin to find the actual application as it relates to the to how it helps attorneys, if you will, the real value behind what's going on. So there's going to be a terminology shakeout. Personally, again, as I noted, I don't really have a preference for the terms I've heard. Part of that comes from what I'm looking for is that which accurately or objectively describes what's really going on. So if you will, my preference would be something more like rule-based or pattern-based review. I think that really gets it down to what the practitioner is after. Um, I'll talk a bit about that more later, but uh, for the purpose of this discussion, uh, we can use predictive coding as a stand-in for the notion of a rule-based system.
2: Well, R- Ralph Losi at Legal Tech, he was quoted as saying something along the lines of keyword searches so over, and, and we know Ralph you know, isn't really short on words a lot of times. <laughs> Um, so, do you think predictive coding really is going to replace what we traditionally know as keyword searching?
3: No, not at all. Um, I think statements like that are very exciting and, you know, they're, uh, they, they drive interest in the industry. But the reality is uh, predictive coding is another tool in our arsenal for, for solving or for helping get review done in efficient ways. Um, rule-based coding, it's, it's new, it's a very useful tool but it certainly doesn't mean the old tools are useless. Uh, Just because somebody invents a screwdriver doesn't mean that a hammer has suddenly become obsolete. Keywords actually allow us to look for very specific, very targeted content within a document. Um, It's easy to use, it's easy to explain, it's easy to understand, and the technology is well understood. Now when you consider smaller matters, of which there are many, um, the predictive rule-based tools, they're fairly complex. They can be expensive, there's a, It can be difficult to set them up, and there's a large learning curve, which can be very steep. So there may not be much gain for the small matters, and we know, again, there's a lot of folks out there. In those cases, keywords are going to be completely appropriate, and so what you really want to do is pick the appropriate tool for the job at hand. Now, if you consider Craig Ball's Edna Challenge or Tom O'Connell's uh, Ernie Challenge, it suggests that there are literally legions of these small matters out there that are being handled in some cases still in paper, or with rudimentary tools. Uh, In those cases, keywords are going to be completely uh, effective, completely sufficient. Uh, For example, I personally helped a small construction firm working on a dispute uh, where each side was clear on what they were after, and the keywords were an effective way to locate the documents so that they could communicate their positions. A rule-based system would have really been overkill in that case and would not have been cost-effective for them. Um, however, what I really think Ralph was kind of getting at is that, in the right situation, these rule based systems can help us overcome the shortcomings with the, if you will, the keyword approach um keywords have often been likened to a children's game go fish. I've heard this uh analogy several times where each side's kind of forced to guess what's in the other person's hand. And the other problem with keywords is that in a in a large matter, there's a tendency to overmatch It's very hard to guess as a person what keyword is precisely the one that gets you the documents you want, but not too many, or conversely, you begin to extract keywords in a way that you end up narrowing out and throwing out items that would have been of interest. Okay? So the new systems as they're being developed are kind of a way that help remove some of the a priori knowledge that's required that the keyword systems uh, sort of inherently have as a problem. So The notion is keywords are dead. No, I don't believe that at all, but how these new tools can help us in an arena where keywords don't apply is really what I think Ralph was kind of driving at.
1: And in that sense,
3: I think uh you know the new tools will be leveraging something that's going to be a very good idea.
1: Yeah, I certainly agree with you and the keyword searching is is not going anywhere for a while, particularly in these smaller cases. I'm sure that some of the folks who who might be listening don't actually understand what predictive coding is and they're looking for some kind of plain English explanation of it. Can you offer one?
2: Uh
3: sure, I can sure try. Um The way I like to look at these, the words, and again, to help me sort through that confusion I talked about earlier, is to actually kind of break down what the words mean. You know, words do mean things to people. And so when we kind of look at it closely, if we look at predictive coding, we're all pretty familiar with the idea of what coding is. You know, the act of applying a designation or a tag to a document. A little bit ironically, it was originally used to mean creating a summary for keyword data in a document but pragmatically speaking today it really means kind of classifying documents into some group okay so coding common example might be uh, it's responsive or it's privileged okay now that brings us to the predictive part or the notion here well predictive as a definition is just to foretell something often with special knowledge so the idea here really if you put them together is that we're able to train a system with some kind of special knowledge or rules and then apply those rules to the unseen documents in order to classify them. Putting it differently, if I'm able to take a small set of documents and code them a certain way, ideally I would like the machine to be able to go out and code a much larger set of documents the same way. Um, Predictive coding has been one of the common terms to imply that act of applying that knowledge to the unknown. If I could, I often describe this for some clients with an analogy, as I sort of refer to, imagine being on the savanna and you're surrounded by animals, and one task might be to sort them out. You see lions and zebras and giraffes. For me, those are the classifications. Okay? That's sort of an example of an exploratory type classification. You're creating categories based on whatever physical appearance. However, another task, more common task, which we see in parallel to review, might be to find all the lions. Okay? So in that case, I'm simply looking for, if you will, documents or lines that fit the pattern of what a lion looks like. The other animals, in essence, can be ignored or can be classified differently. So that's sort of a much more targeted method for describing and classifying. And predictive coding is more like the latter. You know, find me all the lions and you sort of have to define what the lion looks like. Um, An advantage over keyword searching is that in these systems, these rule-based systems, you can actually use the document itself what I call self-describe, you don't have to guess what terms are in it. They're actually right there in the document. And the systems can sort of tease out the patterns which help you start the rules. And so it can kind of tell you a lion would look like a four-legged thing with a tail as opposed to a, or on a short neck instead of a long one, whatever. So that's sort of the notion behind predictive coding is a, a system for applying rules to an unknown corpus uh, with the intent or the hope of speeding things
0: up. And I hope
2: that helps. Mm-hmm. Dan, do you think there are particular types of cases or types of documents where um, this predictive coding or whatever word you want to choose is is best suited, or is or does it really come down to uh, a cost benefit uh, based upon the the sheer volume of the data?
3: I I actually believe the advantage today is primarily cost volume. Um, predictive coding is best suited for large matters or in cases where attorneys might know a strategy but not necessarily have any context again in our experience when i work with the uh smaller companies smaller firms or even the sole practitioners you know there's not a huge need out there to train a system to go apply these rules um the reality is in a very large system though people can't really get their heads around it and as we know uh individuals can make mistakes which can be compounded if you have a lot of reviewers um, and it can be compounded over time. People get exhausted, and looking at linear review is not really an option for a very large system. So, again, this is a tool to help attorneys, helping them categorize or apply their rules to systems as it go or as they move forward. And the notion is it can uh, reinforce or direct the efficient flow of a matter. And I think that most most, in reality, most effectively applies to large matters. Uh, there are other cases. You can imagine um we've actually had situations where we've had large-scale investigations uh, re- relating to bankruptcy or fraud. Okay? And in those cases, the goal wasn't to try to necessarily categorize or suppress or cull certain documents. The idea was to get a really good handle on what information is out there and how to organize that information. Predictive coding is very well suited to that, kind of at the tail end because it allows you to sort of drastically reduce what might have taken days to put these items into various buckets so you can get begin to get a handle on what kind of information you really want to dive into.
1: It seems to me that the predictive coding applications I read about today, they're used in the context of document review, presumably after there's been some initial culling and early case assessment has been done. Should the intent to use predictive coding technology change the decisions you'd make about the collection uh, during early case assessment?
3: I I don't believe it should. Um, Again, the notion of the coding is to work with the corpus that has been collected and to either tease out a pattern or, much more commonly, to apply your rules or your information to it, but obviously if if somebody used that to um, train or to decide what they were going to collect, they could be missing entire buckets of information that the system would then never have access to to apply. Okay. So it's not, in my opinion, intended to define or even uh, influence the strategy of what information should be collected. I think that's something that should be done in the normal process of review. It is a tool to help review get more efficient once you understand how it's going. Uh, to put it a little differently, predictive coding is like a really large cannon, and when it goes off, it makes a really big boom. But if it's not pointed in the right direction, you're not going to hit the target. So this is not a catch-all that solves the process, and it isn't something that really should influence where you would look to get information, how you would collect it, you know, and the veracity and integrity of those steps. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, some skeptics have concern that predictive coding provides speed at the expense of accuracy. Are are there ways to determine how accurate the process really is?
3: There are. Um, What we have to be very careful with, though, is what accuracy means here. So, predictive coding—you're always going to be defining some kind of a trade-off between speed and accuracy. Um, In the extreme, if you looked at every single document to test the "quote unquote" accuracy well, that's just linear review, and you've thrown away any gain. So there's always going to be some level of trade-off. The trade-off with respect to accuracy is that you can be missing some relevant documents, and that's ultimately going to be a judgment call. So the way that I prefer to think of the system is that what you're looking for is confidence, not necessarily accuracy. Uh, back to my Savannah example, if I had a highly specific set of rules to locate zebras, that might be very accurate, but if what I'm after is lions, I've, complete, lions, I've completely missed the boat. Right? So confidence is what we're after. Um, confidence can be obtained by sampling, just like any statistical process, and we can apply a rigorous test to how we determine our confidence intervals. Now, where it becomes accurate is when you have or your system has enough confidence that what you're creating is actually the content you're after. Now you've defined accuracy because you're actually aiming at the target and moving it. Um, there is a prevalent myth that human review is the gold standard, and we know that mistakes can be compounded over time, but there's an equally prevalent myth that the machine removes all the errors, that it is accurate simply because it's consistent. At the end of the day, it has to be a human in there deciding whether or not what's coming out of that machine is actually what's relevant to the case. So I tend to think of accuracy not in terms of what I've been hearing a lot in the industry about numerically this or precision or recall that. I tend to think of it more as what's actually going to help the attorney be confident that for a corpus of this size, they really have a handle on it and that it communicates the idea they need to communicate.
2: That's super. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Gallivan Gallivan and Amelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. you need to strategize review and produce documents for litigation government investigations or hsr second requests in a single e-discovery tool for every size and every type of matter digital war room eliminates costly pre-processing of collected documents realizing savings of 80 percent or more and giving you greater control over e-discovery experience end-to-end e-discovery on your windows desktop on your internal network or in our hosted review center Download a free trial of Digital War Room Pro at www.digitalwarroom.com. That's
0: digitalwarom.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too.
1: Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking to Dan Gallivan, the CTO of Gallivan, Gallivan & Amelia, about eDiscovery's hottest topic, predictive coding. Dan,
2: I I remember someplace that um, your company does not offer a specific predictive coding product, but does offer a customized service. Can, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that is, what the costs are, and how all that works?
3: Uh, certainly. Um, so what we've been doing here for about 10 years is uh, obviously eDiscovery service and project management. And in our practice, we employ our own categorization tools and sort of concept-based analytics, which are designed specifically Um, to help surface key topics, events, and terms from the document corpus. Um, Our premise here is that we don't have a tool because I personally feel strongly at the moment that this isn't a, uh, you know, sell it and send it out there type activity. Um, This is an area where we want to make sure that the attorneys understand how the system is making those decisions and initially, in the generation of the rules, that's an iterative process. as things mature, we may be uh, uh, creating a tool or putting something out there, but we want to make sure that things fit together fairly well. Now, we've heard and seen decisions that state that uh, council has an obligation to understand the electronic discovery rules and to advise clients on how to follow them. And again, I feel pretty strongly about that. So our goal is to create a process which is um, interactive at first, builds confidence in what those rules are going to be, and then we turn those loose on our hosted platform, so that the attorneys can just simply apply those rules and effectively get the benefits of what people think of as predictive coding today, but without the downside of having to worry that they they pointed the tool in the wrong direction. Um, our offering, which uh, in, we know as GIST, it's what it's referred to as, is uh, done with a flat fee, somewhere between 2K and 5K per corpus, and we do that in part so clients can budget accurately for e-discovery. Um, because that's a that's another important part of what what we believe in is that cost should be maintained and things should be accurate um, in terms of uh, budgets and sensible in terms of how folks want to move forward.
1: Well, thanks for explaining that. I'll I'll be very interested to uh, visit your booth at ABA Tech Show. Uh, that will be really quite something, and I think some people will have heard this podcast by that time. So it would be a good booth for everybody to check out, uh, particularly those of you who have smaller cases. What I want to talk about next, Dan, is Judge Peck and the De Silva case, which is what everybody's talking about these days. Uh, And as you well know, but not all listeners will, Judge Peck uh, issued a landmark opinion in February in which he clearly endorsed the use of predictive coding by any other name but predictive coding, certainly. Um, So there was a lot of hand clapping about all that. People were very excited. And then now we've had the the uh, judge, circuit court judge, has said that the plaintiffs may, in fact, file a brief objecting to some of what was in that opinion. And so now everything is back up in the air. Personally, I think that Judge Peck anticipated much of what the objections are and has fairly well documented um, a, a way to uh, take those objections and, and make it something that I think is going to fail, frankly. Uh, But I'm interested in what you think about what Judge Peck wrote, uh, what you think the outcome of the case will be. Do you think that the plaintiffs stand a snowball's chance at heck of of getting anywhere with their objections to his endorsement of this particular predictive coding exercise?
3: Well, uh, obviously there's a lot going on with what came out of the De Silva case. But the ruling, taking those kind of in in backward order there is, while I do think there is some chance that there will be objections, I think what it's really going to do ultimately is, uh, spearhead the notion or the codification of what is really allowable and how this technology will be able to help us. Okay? So certain areas, one might have a legitimate complaint that, um, you know, I don't understand this technology, they don't, how do I know I actually received what I'm due so I can make an accurate assessment, uh, you know, and, and support my claim that and somehow I was injured or wronged. Um, you know, it can't be a black box to both sides. On the flip side, though, is it's clear that we are past some kind of a tipping point. Um, now with the legal industry in, or within the legal industry, that these technologies aren't going to be going away. Um, three things usually in my experience have driven a technology to actually be adopted. One is somebody had to have a vision. Secondly, there had to be the technology to create it but third and most importantly, there had to be some kind of political motivation to get it out there. And so I'm looking at this as the initial sort of first thrust is this is the motivation to really get it out there. We have a precedent now. We have an actual, you know, statement that this is usable. And so there's a, um, you know, the naysayers can kind of come back and say, uh, this doesn't work, but there's something in here that will be driving forward, that will be helping a Helping the review process as we move forward,
2: Dan. You touched a little bit on this earlier, but do you ever think we will reach a point where the the computers can do it all, or or are we always going to need the the human beings? And in in particular, um, what do you think the effect is going to be on the contract attorneys who really have done a lot of this this manual review of late?
3: Well, I I believe strongly believe we will always need people within the within the system. Um, Judge Peck himself emphasized that. Uh, Manual review of documents is still the gold standard, but he said that computerized searches are at least as accurate, if not more so, than manual review. Right? Um, again, as I alluded to, uh, machines don't make decisions. They really don't. They're, they are predictable, they're repeatable, but if uh, the system isn't trained properly, you know, it's not going to make a judgment call. That's a human type thing, a human activity. Um, where I do think it will have an impact is, as you noted, on the way review contractors are used or utilized, if the technology bears out in the way that we all see it going, there'll no longer be the need for the 40 reviewers over two years on a large matter. Um, the error that's introduced in that gets removed. And so what you end up having is a smaller set of specialists rather than a very broad set of foot soldiers trying to plow through, plow through all of these documents. So I think it will have quite a shift on, you know, uh, contract reviewers, um, and how people even do things in-house. But again, I also believe that uh, not every matter is well-suited to this, that for some of the larger firms and the larger matters, it'll be absolutely critical, but it's not like the contract review business is going away.
1: I agree it won't go away, but I I do think some contract attorneys are going to be out of a job soon. I Uh, I would...
3: I would definitely be brushing up on my skills on how I could be an expert in some kind of domain or knowledge.
1: <laughs> Particularly in the larger cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but h- how fast do you think the, the adoption of predicting coding will be? And and seriously, I, I don't see a, this technology coming down to the small cases anytime soon. I think keywords are perfectly adequate for a while. But what's your opinion?
3: Um, again, I believe we're past that tipping point. I think the adoption is actually going to be fairly quick. Um, what I thinks going to happen, though, is we'll always have the early adopters who will be embracing this, and that's where they'll really shake out the issues and you know the things that kind of came up. um how much can be understood, how much should be understood is confidence enough? and you know a uh, phrase that I use around here a fair amount is perfection is the enemy of the good enough. Um, you can support your case, you can make an explanation, you can do things. It doesn't mean you have to show you have one hundred percent of every document that's out and about. So, I believe the adoption is going to be very quick. I believe the technology is here to stay, and I believe it actually adds real value. However, I also believe it's in its adolescence. I don't believe this is mature by any stretch. I believe a lot of the confusion is people trying to define or show a niche where they can add extra bit of value. And ultimately, what I think is going to happen over the next few years is, you know, the warts are going to bubble up, and those are going to be the next set of problems that the technologists are going to knock down in order to support the legal industry.
1: I agree with you completely. And I thank you very much for joining us today, Dan. This is one of the fastest moving e-discovery areas we've ever seen. And we appreciate very much you sharing your expertise with us on this subject.
3: No, no problems at all. It's, a, it's an exciting time for all of us. and so
1: Well, that does it for this
2: edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes.
1: And you can find out more about Sensei's Computer Forensics Technology and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives.
0: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. It's officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.